0: Let's move on to the rest of my commentary. In these last few pages, these last three or four pages, I want to turn my um, attention to another aspect of Yeshua's ministry while he was on earth and the, um, uh, the traditions that surround uh, the events that took place. Now, we've already got the tradition of Passover that's been given to us in the Torah, and from that we have been given the tradition I say tra- I'm using the word tradition there because Passover is a commandment but the details surrounding Pesach are not given therefore if you've attended a traditional Seder in the past and you've seen all the different things that take place at a Seder the washing of the hands the eating of the bitter herbs the maror the Urchat, um the um, uh, all the blessings and the drinking of the four cups and, and the making of the Hillel sandwich and all those different things, um, the telling of the story, the roasted shank bone on the, ta- on the plate, the dipping of the, the, the maror twice, the dipping of the bitter herbs twice, and things like that. Uh, well, not dipping of the marwar twice, but dipping of the parsley or the onion or, or lettuce or whatever it is, uh, celery. Um, to be honest with you, all of that is tradition that has been piled up On top of the commandment that says to observe the Lord's Pesach on the 14th of Nisan at the evening. Um, So that's why I use the word tradition there. But we also have Yeshua's tradition that he handed to us on the night that he died, and that's that during that final Seder, that Chagigah, he actually instituted what the church now recognizes as communion. But which I would also recognize as a valid tradition given to his Talmudim, his disciples. It would be foolish for us, his Talmudim, to neglect that which he gave to us. To be sure, Shaul tells us that that um, the thing that Yeshua, um, the things that Yeshua gave to him, he passes on to his own Talmudim in First Corinthians chapter five. There, when he says, um, or chapter ten, um, is it five or ten? See now, now I gotta, you gotta make me go and look, aren't you? Here we go. Let me just pull it up here. It is chapter, it's not chapter 5, <laughs> sorry, um, I'm going to say that it is chapter 10, it isn't chapter 10, it's chapter 11, sorry. Alright, What? but anyway, Shaul definitely says there in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians that, um, I'll read it, he says, for what I received from the Lord is just what I passed on to you. And he's talking about the communion um uh, details there with the elements, the bread, the wine. Really, it's a scaled-down Passover, because it is a Passover. So, those things we should be doing as believers, no question. However, if we examine the synoptic Gospels, if we look at the information that Yeshua has provided for us, and here's a reference that doesn't show up in my written commentary, but I want to give it to you now, uh, for those of you listening to the audio, okay? I want you to write down this passage, these passages. I want you to write down um, from Matthew. I'm just going to use the four, and then I'm going to pull one from Paul. From Matthew. I want you to write down Matthew chapter. I should have written these down. Let me see if I've got them written down in my notebook here. Give me a second. Let's take a look. Um, is that that? No. No take a look here here we are, I do have them written down alright, I want you to write down these passages, okay Matthew chapter 26 verses 17 through 29 Mark chapter 14 verses 10 through 25 Luke chapter 22 verses 7 through 23 and then John chapter 13 verses 1 through 30, okay and with those passages I want you to also um, correspond to um, the passage in Corinthians that I was just mentioning I want you to write down 1 Corinthians chap, uh, chapter 11 verses 23 through 34 now in these five references what you're going to notice on at a surface reading is that the themes in these passages carry um, uh, one significant event in Yeshua's life and I'll give you a hint it's not his resurrection. Okay? So with that introduction, let's turn now in my commentary to this last section called Sunday Meeting. With a question mark there. Meeting. Suppose the Sadducean, Bethusian view is correct. Suppose Ariel's wrong. And suppose that the Umar Rishit really starts on the morrow following the weekly Shabbat. In other words, the the waving of the first sheaf occurs always after the weekly Sabbath. Let's suppose that that's the um, scenario. And that is, by the way, a a view that many Messianics hold. Um, It's a view... That and again, this is still a Jewish debate because in Christian circles, they don't really concern themselves with the timings of the festivals, since mainstream Christianity has effectively divorced herself from those parts of the Torah, those parts that they label um, ceremonial. So this is really a Jewish debate, Jewish both in messianic circles as well as Jewish in non-messianic circles. But let's suppose that this is the tr- this is the view that the Torah is trying to indicate in the Leviticus passage. Uh, the Leviticus passage that we started out with. This would put the festival on a Sunday every year. And indeed, we read earlier in my commentary from Levine, uh, the JPS Commentary of Leviticus, and he seems to present this this exact view, the Bothusian view, because of its, um, its uh, uh, impact on Shavuot later on. What is the impact on us now as a Messianic community? How would we... Um, interact with this information if the uh, resurrection, I'm sorry, if first fruits, if if Rish, I keep saying first fruits, but I apologize. I'm trying to change my lingo from first fruits to Omer Reshit. First fruits I'm going to now reserve for um, Shavuot, whereas Omer Reshit, first sheaf, I believe is reserved for the barley harvest. Um, first fruits, as I understand it, would be the wheat harvest at Pentecost. All right, allow me to Midrash in a different direction this time, okay? I'm about to step on some toes. I'm just going to say that in advance because I don't wish to offend anyone openly. But I do wish to challenge us, okay? There are seven festivals mentioned on the biblical calendar of Leviticus 23. Each festival carries a similar aspect that ties it into the complete cycle of yearly gatherings. Um, We could say, as I've said in another place of my commentary, that the seven festivals are are the festivals, they are rehearsals, or really they're dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. Each one of them carries with it an aspect of Yeshua's um, life, or his ministry, or his death, or his resurrection, or his intercession, or a second coming, or something like that, alright? In every single feast except one, um, we can observe that the instructions are, quote, to have a holy convocation. They are given that way. Now, technically, as Mark is fond of pointing out, Pesach does not bear this description, but I safely assume that the historical example of the inaugural Pesach in Egypt covers the technicality. In other words, we do gather together as a community each year in our homes. And so, on, on, at a personal level, that's a convocation, But um, compare that to the language of the other ones in Leviticus 23 where God instructs the people to come together um, out of their homes and collectively gather wherever the leadership has designated them to gather, i.e. either the temple precincts or wherever. Um, And we don't have um, the same language for every one of them. Um, The one that is singled out as not being identified as a convocation or a gathering is the one that we're talking about right now, Omer Reshit. Okay? you, you could ask yourself, what could the Holy One possibly be trying to convey to us here by not commanding a Holy Convocation? Now, the following explanation that I'm going to give you will serve as a personal midrash, a personal homiletic application on the calendar and the day that follows the Shabbat. It's not to be understood as the objective interpretation of the text. Rather, it is identifiably subjective. In other words, I'm going to give you my personal opinion as to... Um, the information I'm going to share with you. I base my understanding, however, on the objective findings of the text. Okay, In other words, the text does not tell us to convocate on that Sunday, that ostensible Sunday, following the Omer Rishit. All right? And here's why I think it doesn't. That's what I mean by objective and subjective. We all know that Israel was destined to be great among the surrounding nations, not great in her own right. Theirs was a call to holiness. Theirs was a call to servanthood. It it was vividly demonstrated by their unique God-given calendar that they were to serve the rest of humanity. God was giving them the truth. God was giving them the words of life. And in this gift, he was expecting them to give this in witness, as it were, to the surrounding nations. You Bible students can reference Deuteronomy chapter 4 for that Midrash there. Surely the many cultures and peoples that they interacted with had calendars of their own. Israel was not unique in creating a calendar. And H.E. Each um, unique culture had their their special dates identifying their various holy days and such. Just like if you go from country to country today, you'll find that each nation each nation has its own national um, Independence Day or whatever. You know, like America has Independence Day on, on July fourth. You go to other holidays and they celebrate the days that they were liberated from their um, uh, their their slavery or their or days to. Commemorate um, when they um, had a great battle and they and they they defeated the enemy and things like that. All right, there's nothing wrong with that. That's I, I rather think that's rather I think that's rather um, um, commendable of countries to do that. And I think it's great if you belong to a country that has such calendar days uh, that you recognize them and 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 be proud of that from who you, from where you came. However, um, Israel. Excuse me. Israel was supposed to showcase the heavenly reality. This was not Israel's calendar um, in and of themselves. It was not um, an auto- oh, what's the word I want to use? It was not a um, uh, uh, it was not a locally autonomous calendar. Is that the word I want to use? I don't think so. Um, there's a word that that's that's I'm trying to think of. Um, it, was not, it was not indigenous to Israel, their calendar, that's the word I was looking for. Israel did not make it up on their own. God gave this calendar to Israel. Um, and and through the um, the calendar, Israel was supposed to showcase the heaven reality through the earthly means. And what were they supposed to be teaching everyone, including themselves? Well, among other things, they were to be teaching everyone that there was only one true God under heaven, worthy to be identified and worshipped as creator. That's one of the things that they were supposed to be teaching. Israel was to teach the surrounding nations by their own lifestyle that quote, God is one. Of course that's a reference to Deuteronomy 6.4. Okay? During this period of the Tanakh, God usually worked out his truth by means of object lessons. That's how he taught his people. His children would quote, do things which the surrounding nations were not doing. Similarly, his children would also abstain from the things which the surrounding nations were performing. See how that worked? God wanted them to be different. In this way, in this difference that they were trying to make, the surrounding nations would catch a glimpse of the difference between what God identified as clean and unclean, holy and profane, life and death. God is a God of differences. That's something we need to just camp out on and never, ever lose sight of that. God is not really about um, um, homogenization. God is not into mixing and matching everything together so that we can get a smooth mixture. If it has to be rough to be different, well then by golly it's going to be rough and God's into, into differences. This was Israel's special call. In fact, the priests were um, also required to make this difference between the holy and the profane, life and death, good and bad, clean and unclean, light and darkness, etc., etc. This was Israel's special call, and as such, it identified her unique chosenness. We always re- think of Israel as the chosen people. What were they chosen to do? Well, they were chosen to do the very things I just mentioned. All right, read Deuteronomy four verses one through twenty. 20 specifically for this commentary verses 19 to 20 and you'll see again that this is what I'm trying to hint at Israel's call by the way is the church's call lest some of you start saying well Israel was chosen to do one thing and the church was chosen to do no no they have the same call and we understand that Israel's call and the church's call are identical to make a difference in the world between the one true God and all other ostensible false uh, or supposedly true gods but but in reality we know are false gods The church has been called out, thus their term, ekklesia, the church, the called out ones, just like Israel, the, the, um, the, uh, uh, the, what is the Hebrew equivalent? I just drew a blank. Um, The, the kahal, yeah, the kahila, uh, the called out ones. Kahal is probably related to the Hebrew word call, which means voice. KOL, K-O-L, or Q-O-L. So Israel and, and the church, which is, of course, remnant Israel, right? Um, they have this special call. And um, as such, we need to recognize the competition, all right? Israel's not just going to step into the land of Canaan and and start giving out um, the truth where there was formerly no truth. The competition is that paganism has always been rife in the earth, since man really uh, set foot on the earth. I mean, Tower of Babel says it all, right? Man trying to create his own way back to heaven. Man trying to create his own way um, to righteousness, and uh, or trying to um, put forth some sort of righteousness that his uh, his self-created gods will identify with or accept. Sun worship is one of the oldest forms of paganism that exists in the earth today. Sun worship has been rife in the earth since the days of Babel, the Tower of Babel. All right, there's evidence to suggest that the um, the ziggurats and the um, um, the uh, the tower itself, the towers, the towers reaching into heaven, uh, the ladders that reach into heaven, uh, uh, quote unquote, that these all um, give their credence or owe their allegiance to one form of sun worship or another, because the sun has been one of the chief deities throughout many pagan uh, practices from the beginnings of time. And so the ancient myths, I'm just going to now mishmash through some of the um, details that many of you are familiar with, but uh, for the sake of my commentary, I'm not going to put one particular name on these details, except for the name, Sun worship, all right? Um, the ancient myths tell of a supernatural being, a messiah type, born of a woman and born of the very rays of the sun itself. Um, this supernatural being was supposedly killed by his enemies during the winter solstice, and only to be resurrected on the first day of the spring equinox. Uh, this interpretation arose out of the belief that the sun was, in fact, a god, small g-o-d, which slept in death during the cold winter months and arose to new life at the start of spring. In other words, the ancient pagan peoples or the ancient people groups, without a a proper knowledge of the truth of God and God's ways, were left to reinvent what they felt were the truths of the earth and the sun and the stars and the moon and all the signs of heaven. And so in their ignorance, the Torah teaches us that man worshipped the creation the sun, the earth, etc., instead of the creator. Now, um, again, because the worshippers on the earth needed the sun's vital life-giving energy, they realized, of course, that life ceases to exist without the the, the, the warmth and the light from this this uh, star, this sun. Without this energy, um, they realized that that they would die, and so as in in, in their reaction. They revered it as such in various pagan rites and rituals and ceremonies. Sun worship was therefore in many pagan cultures mandated for survival itself. It's no secret that ancient Rome was characterized by the sun cults that permeated her. Oh yes, the sun was a chief deity in ancient Rome as well, as well as ancient Egypt and other uh, other cultures. One of the chief ceremonies uh, in these pagan beliefs, involved greeting the sun as it made its way victoriously back from the underworld of the dead during the first um, 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 the break from the winter solstice into the spring solstice. Okay? The, 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 we're talking about the vernal equinox. Uh, in fact, let me just look up here real quick. The definition of vernal equinox. I want to give you a definition because I used a term that growing up I never fully understood myself. Vernal equinox. I'm looking it up on my online dictionary. So I can give you a dictionary definition. All right. Here is the dictionary definition. Vernal equinox. It's a noun. It's the equinox in spring on about March 20th in the Northern Hemisphere and September 22nd in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, Did you see it there? The equinox in the spring. Now what does that remind you of concerning the biblical feast? Oh Nisan is in the spring. Uh huh. We're starting to see the similarities, alright? So one of the chief ceremonies of these pagan beliefs is that the sun was was held captive of sorts during the winter months. Um, And now it's making its way back from the world of the dead, the underworld as it were. And its followers would meet their deity as he made his reappearance from the wintry death that held him captive for a season. And guess what? The day chosen to represent this glorious awakening would become known as the first day of the Spring equinox and to ensure that the themes and the symbols would forever be established among their adherents an unforgettable name was granted to this very special day thus you could say sun day was born interesting isn't it i'm just going to do this real quick it's not in my commentary but i'm going to pull up I'm going to pull up Wikipedia, that, that famous online resource. And I'm going to look up the term Sunday and see what happens. All right, this is just an experiment. I don't know what it's going to show. But you and I are going to find out together right now on the spot. Okay? I look up Sunday and here's what it says. Quote, this is from Wikipedia. This is not in the written commentary. This is just a bonus for those of you listening to my commentary. Sunday is the day of the week between Saturday and Monday. In Judeo-Christian tradition, it is the first day of the week. Since the second half of the 20th century, it has also been counted as seventh day of the week as international standards have been agreed upon for overcoming technical barriers in worldwide commerce. In a number of countries, both counts run side by side. Sunday, they go on to say, is considered a holiday in most countries around the world as part of the weekend. Only countries influenced by Islamic culture often have Friday as weekly holiday holiday instead. And they go on to say, um, down for the name Sunday, it says, quote, the name Sunday, and that's in quotes, day of the sun is in brackets, apparently originated in a pre-Christian Egyptian culture. They reference T. Slater's article on Sunday in the 1908 Catholic Encyclopedia. That's interesting. In Ptolemaic Egyptian astrology, the seven planets, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Mars, the sun, Venus, Mercury, and the moon, there's seven, yes, they considered the sun a planet at the time, each, well, not, not a technically a planet, but a, 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 an astrological body, each had an hour of the day assigned to it, and the planet which was regent during the first hour of any day of the week gave its name to that day. They go on to say, quote, the Egyptian form of the seven-day week spread from Egypt From Egypt to Rome during the first and second century, when the Roman names of the planet were given to each successive day, Germanic-speaking nations apparently adopted the seven-day week from the Romans. Now, isn't that interesting? Who was the world power during Yeshua's day? Yeah, the Romans. Okay, let's keep reading. I'm not trying to say that everything that Rome does is wrong. That's not where I'm going with that. We're just talking about history, okay? Anyway, um, Germanic peoples apparently adopted the seven-day week from the Romans so that the Roman Dies Solis became Sunday. In German, it's Sonntag. The Christians reinterpreted the heathen name as implying the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness with reference to his arising out of Malachi 4.2. It was also called Dies Panis Day of Bread, because it was an early custom to break bread on that day. Interesting. If I were to keep reading or doing other links to Sunday, um, we would again see that um, Sunday bears a um, connection to the sun cults and the um, sun worshippers of days gone by. So, at this point in my commentary, it should be rather obvious by now That the event that I'm describing, greeting the sun as it made its way back from the underworld of the dead, that this bears a remarkable resemblance to our modern-day Easter celebration. And again, it should, and this should be no surprise, since the origins of Easter can indeed be traced back to this very legend. Let's pull a Wikipedia again, alright? This time I'm going to look up the word Easter, E-S-T-E-R. And here we're, here's what we find. Easter again from Wikipedia. Easter, the Sunday of the Resurrection, Pascha, or Resurrection Day, is the most important religious feast of the Christian liturgical year, observed at some point between late March and late April each year. In parentheses, they say, early April to early May in Eastern Christianity. It celebrates the resurrection of Jesus, which his followers believe occurred on the third day after his death by crucifixion, sometime in the period AD 27 to 33. Uh, Then if we jump down... Um to etymology. Let's see, where do I want to pull it up? Date of Easter, computations, Western Christianity, Eastern Christianity, Western Christianity, Eastern uh, let's see. And then they give some other countries. Easter controversy. Etymology and the origins of Easter traditions. Let's look at that real quick. In his de temporum rash Rat, ration, I think I pronounced that right. I think that's uh, Latin. Uh, the venerable Bede, or Bede wrote that the month um, Oestromat, Estramonat. I'm sorry, um, is April was so named because of the goddess uh, Oestra or Eestra, as I've heard it pronounced. Is where it's it's spelled E O S T R E. Oestra is what I've heard the best pronunciations. Uh, who had formerly been worshipped in that month? In recent years, some scholars have suggested that the lack of supporting documentation for this goddess might indicate that Bede or Bede assumed its B E T E is his name assumed her existence based on the name of the month. Others note that Bede's status as quote the father of English history had been the author of the first substantial history of England ever written might lack the additional mention for a goddess whose worship had already died out by Bede's time. Unsurprising. Um, They go on to say, uh, let's see, that some suggest an etymological relationship between um, Oestra and the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. The variant spelling would be Eshtar with an E instead of an I there, and the possibility that aspects of an ancient festival accompany the name, claiming that the worship of Bel and Astarte was anciently introduced into Britain, and that the hot cross buns of Good Friday and dyed eggs of Easter Sunday figured in the Chaldean rites just as they do now. Finally, it goes on to say, claiming a connection between Ishtar and Easter is an example of false etymology and ignores the fact that Easter is called Passover in almost every other language of the world. The only exceptions appear to be the languages of those people who f- first learned Christianity at the hands of English or other anglophone anglophone missionaries. Examples of us are the Hebrew Pesach, the Greek Pascha, the Latin Pascha, the Latin, the Italian Pasqua, the French Pas- um, Paques, the Spanish La Pasqua, and the Scots Gaelic, Ankaska, The holiday was not called Easter until the eighth century, by which time it had already been in existence for seven hundred years. Now, um, end quote. By the way, <coughs> excuse me. I don't know if Wikipedia there is trying to mask the um, the truth that there is a relationship between the pagan um, celebration and the the Christian innovation of. Of Passover, but what we do know for certain is that there is a relationship between Easter and Passover, and that's undeniable. How detailed you want to get between those um, uh, comparisons is up to you. But let me go ahead and continue in my commentary and say this much: All right, Christianity, in its infancy, swelled to overflowing with former pagans in an effort to establish itself as a viable religion in the third and fourth centuries. It's probably even earlier than that. That's a modest um, figure there when I say third and fourth. It was misunderstood that Judaism had failed, okay? In my commentary, I put the word miss in parentheses because according to Christianity, Judaism had failed, so therefore it's their understanding. But we understand as studying the Torah that it's a misunderstanding. Judaism had not failed in that sense. But Christianity teaches, at least ancient Christianity did, modern Christianity today seems to be coming full circle and realizing that there have been many mistakes in their treatments of the Judaisms down through the years. So, Baruch Hashem, bless you, modern Christianities, for coming full circle. Um, For those of you who are coming out of darkness back into light. Anyway, Christianity misunderstood that Judaism had failed, and that in its lack of recognition of the Messiah, placed it in a place less favored, nay, rejected, by the Holy One Himself. How many of you listening to my commentary have heard the common notion or common teaching that Judaism rejected Jesus and therefore God rejected Judaism? Or to put it more bluntly, the Jews rejected Jesus so God rejected the Jews. And in the rejection of the Jews, God chose from a new people group called the Church, viz. the Gentile Christians. You've heard that? Raise your hand. Yeah, I can see all those hands around the world being raised, those people listening to my commentary. That's a shame, people. That's a very sad commentary on the uh, on the history of God's dealings with his people. God did not reject Israel. Paul says so in Romans chapter 11. At any rate, um, looking back... Uh, I'm sorry. In, in this in this uh, caricature painted by um, historic Christianity, Christianity would take its rightful place, ostensibly among believers as the quote true expression of Christ worship." End quote. Now, looking back in 2020 hindsight, we can understand today that this paradigmatic shift was not entirely complete, nor would it be permanent. It was, in fact, a shifting of responsibility. I don't want to negate the, negate the fact that God was doing something new within the Gentile elements of remnant Israel. There is a newness about the apostolic scriptures that we need not argue over. I've heard Messianics go to the nth degree to try to explain that that Jesus introduced nothing new, that the, his followers, the Talmudim, Shaul and such, introduced nothing new to the people of the first, second, and third, and fourth centuries and following, but that's not entirely accurate. There is some innovation taking place, and there is a shifting responsibility of sharing the good news with the surrounding nations, which placed Israel in this place of in this position of quote less favored. It does say that in Romans 11 that a temporary blindness has come on part uh, to um, Israel, and in this blinding, the Gentiles are being shown the light, and in this revelation the responsibility is being taken up again it's like a really it's like a passing of the baton but without for leaving the other runner behind it's in my example the passing of the baton uh, the Gentiles pick up the baton where the Jewish people have been running for so many years. But eventually, it's just to give the Jewish people a, kind of a reprieve, as it were, while God works with the second runner. And eventually, the second runner is supposed to come back and revisit the first runner so that the two can run together once again. The students of my commentary should familiarize themselves with Romans chapter 11, as I keep mentioning. But like Israel of the young Christian church would make many significant mistakes and mixing paganism with truth would become one of her errors which would permeate the very fabric of the formalized church. Like tzara'at, like leprosy, okay? Down to this day, the church has been stained by the pagan mixtures, by what we call syncretism, by mixing the good with the bad, and failing to make a distinction between the holy and the and the profane. The very thing that Israel was accused of doing um, for centuries before the exiles um, was that she had a penchant lust for idolatry. And she would also do the same thing. One day she would worship the one true, one true God by ostensibly bringing sacrifices out of an ostensible true heart. And the next day she's bowing her knees at the altars of Baal. And God was not happy. God was not fooled either, by the way, okay? He was not saying, okay, that's great, you're worshipping me. I'm just going to look the other way when you go to the altars of Baal. Not in your life. Well, guess what? Christianity has been dabbling with paganism for nearly 1,900 years, 2,000 years. Isn't it time we get rid of those things? Come on, people, put away the paganism. I'm getting upset here now, I apologize. In this historical narrative that I'm describing, it's great that, that... the Gentile elements of Christianity embraced Jesus as the Christ, but by 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 synchronizing and syncretizing um, paganism with the truth, much damage has been done. The pagans within the Christian ranks—I'm not just going to blame it on them—but but but the numbers were swelling, and it was very hard to distinguish true pagans from true believers and vice versa. And the pagans, as I like to see it, brought their worship of the sun into Christianity or, conversely, the genuine Christians begged for the pagans to bring it in. Either way, paganism was brought into Christianity, sun worship was brought into Christianity, and its traces can be observed even today. For instance... Easter, just like um, Wikipedia recognized there, or mentioned there, is rightly recognized as quote, the holiest gathering within Christianity. Billions of followers flock to sunrise services all over the world to do what? To pay homage to the true S O N who was resurrected on this day, and rightfully so. Jesus was risen from the dead and recognized on the first day of the week. Were it not for the awesome resurrection of our Lord Yeshua, which I'm not trying to minimize. Please don't put words in my mouth. Were it not for his resurrection from the power of death, we believers, both Jew and Gentile, we would have no hope in this world. Okay, It would be hopeless to follow this Messiah. However, he did resurrect. Moreover, he did defeat death on that day. And we do have a reason to celebrate But do we have a biblical injunction to gather on this particular day? That's my question. That's my challenge. It is my premise that we do not. Our theology seems to be correct, yet our methodology lacks authenticity. The way in which we are doing and going about this is all wrong. Consider my example in my commentary from the book of Ezekiel, chapter eight. I'm on page 11 of my commentary. Okay, I'm almost done. Hang out, hang, hang with me, stick with me. Don't 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 tune me out just yet. This is a reading from Ezekiel chapter eight. Um, I'm just going to read a very significant quote. All right, quote: In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house, and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. This is Ezekiel writing. Right? Remember, Ezekiel was a priest. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down he was like fire, and from there up his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me, was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the utter detestable things the house of Israel is doing there, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked, and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall, and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing there, or doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals. And all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood seventy elders of the house of Israel, and Jaazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen? What the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken his land. Again he said, You will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women there mourning for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, Have you seen the Son of Man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them." What a powerful passage. I get chills down my back reading that information. And I hope it should strike you as shocking as well. What in the world is Israel thinking? Standing with their back to the temple and their faces towards the east bowing down to the sun in the east greeting the sun? Oh yes, people. Make no mistake. It's sun worship. So apparently, sun worship was even being practiced by Am Yisrael. Oy vey! Oy vey! Exactly how, long, how low had God's chosen people fallen? It's a sad legacy being recorded there by Ezekiel. The traceable pattern to disobedience and error looks like this. First, man misunderstands God's purposes. It says in the, ver- in the passage up there, That the people thought that God had forsaken his land because of the exile that they were experiencing. Remember, Ezekiel was in exile and he's transported by the Spirit back to his home city of Jerusalem. So, the people are in exile and they're in exile and the remainder of the people who were left there, at least in Ezekiel's vision, say, God has forsaken his holy city. God has forsaken the land. God hadn't forsaken the land. God was punishing the people for their idolatry. Yet the people were misunderstanding God's Punishment. So that's the first um, step in error and disobedience. Man misunderstands God's purposes. Then, man misunderstands God's methods. A lack of understanding of sanctification and true worship resulted in blatant disobedience of the Torah and eventually gross, idolatrous practices. Go back and read verse 17 through 18 again, Alright? It is a shame that the people were doing this in God's house. It's a shame that they were doing it at all. But to bring the pagan mixture into the house of God is what grieved the Spirit of God so much. God wishes that we were either hot or cold. But because we are lukewarm with our pagan mixtures, our syncretism, you know what God says? And you've read it in Roman, in a Revelation God will spew us out of his mouth. I believe that the organized body of Messiah of the 21st century, the church, is not far behind Am Yisrael in this passage. The damage has been done. Today, in fact, as I'm recording this commentary on Saturday, the 7th of April, but the um, the 19th of, of, of Nisan. Tomorrow is Easter Sunday. The 8th of April, first day of the week, is Easter Sunday, 2007. And I'm ashamed to admit, people, that I will not be surprised to find multitudes of professing believers in Jesus, flocking to sunrise services throughout the entire world. The damage has been done. Today, and and, and again, Judaism is not exempt, but right now I'm just singling out the church for this message that I really feel that the Spirit is telling me to tell you. Today, tradition still blinds us to the unchanging truth of God's word. A truth that should not be compromised. The world is watching us believers. Oh yes. We we may not know it but they're watching. Someone is always watching. They're observing whether or not we will make a difference between the clean and the unclean. The holy and the profane. They're watching to see if we will demonstrate the truth between life and and death. Hashem did not tell Am Yisrael to gather on Yom Habikurim on the day after the Shabbat, which according to the Sadducees is Sunday. Yom uh, uh, on Omer Rishit. God did not tell Israel to gather there. He only told the priests to get together and to wave the Omer Rishit, the first sheaf. I believe that God told Israel not to gather on this day after the Sabbath in order to separate his truth from the error of paganism. Remember, sun worship predates Judaism. It predates um, what Moses gave to us in uh, Leviticus 23. That's not to say that error came before truth. Truth came first. But the perversion of truth was... Um, existing in the days of... Well, existed all the way back to Babel. All the way back to Babel, okay? All the way back to Babylon. I believe that the people of the Tanakh set the biblical example for us today not to gather on that special Sunday during the Passover week for a true heavenly reason. God was instilling within them special truths that they were to demonstrate to the people groups around them by not gathering together on this Sunday. And again, I'm saying Sunday because, again, that would be the Sadducean view, the Bethusian view, that has um, Omar Rashid falling on the day after the weekly Sabbath, instead of falling after the festival Sabbath like I believe it should be. Why have we, the followers of Jesus, failed to grasp this truth? Surely Yeshua was raised from death to life on that morning following the Sabbath. I am not negating that central truth. We must recognize a risen Yeshua, or he is no Messiah at all. Surely he is the first fruits from the dead. That's what my Bible tells me. He is the first person, the first human, to be raised unto a resurrection of Israel incorruptible flesh amen although our flesh still houses sin his flesh was sinless before his death on the execution stake and his resurrection demonstrates for us genuine believers what a resurrected body will be made like raised to life everlasting hallelujah in my conclusion then I have to ask the body of Messiah please listen to me today Why then do we continue to confuse this wonderful truth with our man-made tradition of sunrise services, Easter bunnies, Easter rabbits, Easter eggs, the whole Easter uh, um, shebang? Why do we do it? Why don't we return to the biblical truth as outlined for us in the pages of God's Holy Torah? Isn't it time we start demonstrating His holiness to the rest of the world by the very days that we gather on? I think it is. After all, remember what I stated at the very beginning of my commentary. The first Always belongs to Hashem. So why are we sharing it with paganism? Consider these words. With that, I greet you, Chag Sameach Rishit. Happy Festival of the First Sheaf. For further study, I'd like you to read my comment. I'm sorry. I'd like you to read um, the Bible, which are much better than my commentaries. Read Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. And verse nineteen, as well as Exodus thirty-four twenty-six. Read Leviticus two, verse twelve and verse fourteen, as well as chapter twenty-three, verses twenty. Read Numbers chapter eighteen, verses twelve through fifteen, as well as verse twenty-six. Read Deuteronomy eighteen, verses one through five, and chapter twenty-six, verses two through four, and verse ten. Read Second Chronicles thirty-one five. Read Nehemiah ten, verse thirty-five through thirty-nine. Read Proverbs three verse nine. Read Jeremiah two three, Ezekiel forty four thirty, and chapter forty four of Ezekiel and verse fourteen. Read Malachi three, eight through fourteen. Read Matthew thirteen thirty-seven through thirty-nine, Mark four, twenty-six through twenty-nine, Hebrews six, verse twenty, Hebrews seven, verses one through eight, and Hebrews twelve verse one. Read Jude fourteen, and finally read Revelation one, verse seven. I love you all. Thank you for your prayers and for your support. Continue to pray for me and continue to support me by um, visiting our website at Grafton.com, reading the commentaries, downloading the MP3s, subscribing to iTunes, grabbing all the audio content. It's all for you. It's free. Take it, use it, utilize it. Please don't change it without asking me. But give it out to your friends and family and anyone else who wants to do um, more extensive studies on the biblical truths that we're learning in these commentaries. Okay, I, uh, I again I love you all and I wish you all a very well and a happy counting of the Omer. Stick to the count, people, because in 50 days or so, a most wonderful thing is going to happen, and I don't want you to miss it. I'm going to be there. Our Lord will be there, and I'm looking forward to seeing you there as well. Okay, shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, Without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.